Welcome to the Learner-Centered Spaces podcast, where we empower and inspire ownership of learning. Sponsored by Mastery Portfolio, hosted by Star Saxstein, Emma Chapetta, and Crystal Frommer. In each episode, we will bring you engaging conversations with a wide variety of educators, both in and out of the classroom. This podcast is created for educators who want to learn more about how to make the shift toward learner-centered spaces for their students, schools and districts, or education at large. The Learner-Centered Spaces podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Get ready to be inspired as we dive right into the conversation with today's guest. N.A. Abby Mouton describes herself as a believer, an African-American woman, wife, and mother. She is the secondary school social studies and speech and debate educator at the Audi International School in Houston, Texas. Her journey includes undergraduate and graduate studies. She completed a performance studies program at the University of Ghana at Accra and a literature and theater program at the University of London. N.A. considers herself an educator versus a teacher. Hello, N.A. We are so excited that you're with us today. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your role, your location, your journey, and maybe an interesting fact? Absolutely. Um, I teach at the Audi International School in Houston, Texas. I teach secondary social sciences and speech and debate. I hail from the best city in the world, Chicago, Illinois, if you didn't know. Undergraduate studies as well as graduate studies, um, I think what set the trajectory of my approach to teaching and learning, however, were my study abroad experiences in Ghana and in London, um, and understanding how study abroad is really an experiential learning um, program where you spend more time beyond the walls versus in the walls because the whole idea of consuming and synthesizing and ultimately appreciating the culture that informs the sensibilities and the education is what's most important. Um, interesting thing about me, I've got two cats named Kit Cat and Gigi. And I've got a husband who's from a small town in Louisiana called Rain, and that's the fraud capital of the world, if anybody's heard of it. And whereas he nor I are Houstonians, they are Houstonians and proud. <laughs> Thanks so much. We are so excited to have you and to hear more about your experience in education. So could you start out by telling us what a learner-centered space looks like, feels like, sounds like to you? Um, For me, a learner-centered space is a space in which students have um, agency, um, stake and control. Um, And to the extent that you can, as the facilitator of the learning, you circumscribe everything around their needs as a learner. Um, which requires um, centering their voices and um, centering their humanity and dignifying that by uh, um, reverencing it in your actions. So anywhere from as simple as um, the learning space setup, um, centering them, making sure they know that they are the headliners every time they come into that learning space. Um, Also, As a humanities teacher, um, I find it very important to inventory um, who is in the classroom, um, anywhere from their ethnicity um, to their gender identity, um, ensuring that I am aware of whom 
I have in the space so that at some point in that year, they feel seen, heard, acknowledged. Um, there is a professor named Nadine uh, Rudine Sims Bishop, and she talks about the importance of windows, mirrors, and sliding doors and how in every learning space, um, students should be able to see a mirror of themselves, be able to look out of a window at another culture and then have a sliding door in which they're able to sort of vacillate between the liminality of that and um, explore and experience um, various um, modalities for themselves. And so I, I try to keep that um, at the center of our time. Also um, in a humanity space, and I acknowledge that it's much easier to do it in that type of environment, um, empowering them and creating a learning framework in which they center themselves in relationship to the social sciences. So they always understand the import of the subject matter and that they come out of the space transformed versus simply leaving um, transactionally centered. Um, so the learning space is supposed to transform the learner. Um, I believe that teaching is ministry. As a person of faith, it's uh, teaching is one of the fivefold in ministry. And so I feel very uh, passionately about the importance of the transformative nature of education. They should never leave the same as they came. Um, and so for me, um, those are just a few elements in which I feel make a student-centric space. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, this is Crystal here. And Hi. just so our listeners know, N.A. and I work together at the same school and we chat a lot. Even though she's working in the humanities and I work in math, we have a lot in common. Absolutely. And I know that you and I have had this conversation before, um, but for the listeners, um, how does assessment play into your idea of learner-centered space when you're in your classroom? Well, for me, traditional assessment um, can be harmful for students because it's, again, if we're doing student centering, traditional assessments just serve to inventory what you feel the student should know and be able to do. Whereas if it's student-centered assessment, should really focus on what they feel is important that they have been able to garner from that learning space. And so they should be able to create um, and have a huge stake in how they're assessed and what they feel is important that they are assessed on as what they should be leaving that space having um, learned and having set with them. Um, I think sometimes we, again, forget that students are the primary stakeholders in learning institutions. Everything else becomes more important. And so every single thing, including assessment, should be circumscribed around their needs and what they feel is important learning to the extent to which um, I include them in the assessment uh, creation. What do you feel you need to be assessed on? They create test questions. Um, they create sort of the chunks of subject around where they should be assessed, how they should be assessed, what should um, be the what they should be assessed on. Um, and again, in that sense, the studies show that, first of all, that's a best practice. And second of all, typically when they are creating those assessments, they tend to be more rigorous. Um, I think sometimes in a space, students don't feel comfortable having that type of agency and autonomy because they're not used to being the center 
Um, they, they're not used to being at the center. They're used to that learning facilitator charting that course for them. Whereas really education is a modality of liberation and an additional uh, modality of, um, of activism. And so I truly believe that students um, need to own and need to be empowered to own their learning journey, not just around subject matter, but ultimately to um, assessment. I love that. And when you're when you're talking about assessment, um, I know in your classes you do a lot of project based learning. Yes. Um, in assessments, and because um, I, I see that happening down the hall, um, yeah. and we we work at a pretty traditional grades school. And what advice would you give to other teachers who are listening to this, who also work in a similar school where there is a grade that is due at the end of the term? Um, you know, how do you translate the student agency and their assessment into an actual number grade that we have to turn in? Well, I think that's the way I respond to the traditional expectation of assessment um, at our school. Um, I put the work of assessing into the student's hand by and largely. I may create the structure um, so that we can uh, fulfill the expectations, um, but my response to that traditional testing expectation is that students own that. And um, again, they move from discomfort to empowerment pretty quickly because students are malleable. Um, they and, and they want to lead. They want to be at the fore. And Crystal, as you know, our students are are extremely brilliant and empowered. And whether or not they realize it, um, they are agents. Uh, they have no problems communicating their needs. <laughs> so um, putting that in their hands is extremely important. And I think for us teachers, it's, it's the piece of relinquishing control um, and, and a need to feel like our validity um, as teachers, our credibility as teachers uh, comes from being in control of outcomes. Um, and so I think that for me, what I would tell teachers is relinquish control, give students stake. Um, Make it a learning community in which you are the lead learner. Um, you know, that sort of uh, uh, little saying, instead of being the sage on the stage, be comfortable becoming the guide on the side and creating a framework in which they can um, fully actualize and even sort of customize their learning journey based on their personal identities. And be okay with it. Um, know that that is just as, if not more valid than the traditional approach um, otherwise, uh, we as teachers find ourselves questioning each other's competence because we feel like if we validate someone else's approach to teaching, it invalidates ours, so we have to get to them first. As you've experienced and, and have known, um, my teaching partner, uh, partner in crime, Mr. Moore, and I have, have sort of been these <laughs> academic outlaws because with the cultural anthropological lens from which we teach, which, from which we educate, we truly believe in students' um, having a sense of ownership of their learning. And if we're not teaching them about themselves in relationship to the social sciences and what they can take away as being situated in history, being situated in social um, justice, being situated um, in societal um, elements as a general statement, why are we teaching them? Um, so we truly believe in that. And we certainly feel Jacob Moore, who happens to be a, a well, he's actually young enough to be my son, technically, um, he has really taught me 
to to understand that this is when you reach the epicenter of teaching and teaching and learning. Um, when when learning becomes an exchange and a collaboration in which we are learning as much, if not more, from students than they could ever learn from us. But we're creating the framework in which they're able to do that. And of course, um, the the culturally responsive safety that helps them to be seen and validated and acknowledged so that they can reciprocate um, in, in, in teaching us and in doing so teaching each other. You're speaking my love language. This is Star again. Um, <laughs> when I was in the classroom, uh, I, I taught English and journalism, mostly mm. once or twice social studies. And in the time that I was in that space, um, everything that you just discussed was something that I really prized myself um, mm. in terms of teaching kids to take that ownership because I was teaching them largely in 11th and 12th grade and mm. the system had really done a number on them. So yes. When, oh. <laughs> so oh. when you ask them to make choices or talk about their learning or co-construct projects with you or discuss what success looks like, these are things they're really unaccustomed to choosing or understanding because they're really comfortable with just being told what to do. Mm -hmm. um, and that to me was not how I wanted our shared space to look. Absolutely. Um, so what I'm curious now is, was there a moment in your career where you you started in a traditional space? Like I know I started traditionally of like what was done to me. Mm -hmm. And then as time went on, uh, I started educating myself so that I could do things differently, which meant really letting go of control, like, sure. like you said. And also really being confident with the chaos that was going to yes. ensue in my space. <laughs> yes. Um, so oh, what, gosh. what was your moment that you were just like, you know what, kids can, and I'm going to create this environment so that they could be even more successful once mm -hmm. they're given the reins to do so? Oh my gosh, that's a brilliant question, Saren. Thank you for asking. Um, I think I sort of... Uh, been in and out of it, depending on, you know, really the coercive expectations of the institutions in which I've had to teach. Um, now, be mindful, I have taught anywhere from public to charter, i.e. KIPP, which ultimately went public, right, um, to um, very conservative private, and then Audi, which, ironically enough, um, <laughs> Notwithstanding our leader, who is very much, uh, very much leans toward our side and conceptuality of the way teaching and learning should ensue in a classroom, there's also sort of um, in private spaces, students, um, parents who feel that, um, unfortunately, that they themselves could be teachers because, you know, that's a thing where they devalue and tend to undermine teachers. And if they feel that the teaching and learning isn't happening in a way that they feel it should be happening, and it often is gauged around the way they learned like decades ago, if it's un, if it's if it doesn't reflect the model that they're used to, which is very archaic, um, and so much theory has gone forth that says that and is often grounded in like an industrialized model of teaching and learning where the teacher stands in the front, the desks are facing forward, they're all in a line. They, it makes them nervous. Um, 
it, 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 it makes them wonder whether or not learning is happening when their students are being provided agency and ownership and autonomy and get to choose what they learn, right? Uh, they feel often that, well, this isn't what I'm paying for. I'm paying for the teacher to know everything and to simply pump them with knowledge and then have them spit that knowledge out in a traditional assessment. Um, and this is how my child become, you know, has this sort of uh, merit-based education, this grade-based education. And so, um, and then I have people in my own department who constantly interrogate the way my teaching partner and I teach and learn because um, I, my opinion is that they have professional rigor mortis. They're so set in their ways as educators and, and, and their perception about what children should be able to learn and be able to do that they want you to follow their lead, but they're not open to learn themselves. And my teaching partner's degree is degrees, um, especially in the area of education, are is much more relevant because he's much younger. So he's just getting his degrees like in the past five or so years and continuing the learning. And there's a point at which even in the private sector, I don't know the extent to which teachers are motivated to continue to learn, particularly if it re requires them to completely erase everything they knew about teaching and learning and adopt a new model that's applicable mm -hmm. to today's generation. Um, of youth. We all, you know, look at it kind of like uh, the C-section. We're all women here. It, it's it's like a, you know, and, and not seeing ourselves as teaching practitioners, right? Where we're, we should be constantly in the work of experimentation and learning from the research and learning from our subjects, right? Um, and so it's like, what if someone were still uh, doing the C-section surgery where like they're cutting that invasive hole from top to bottom versus sort of the non-invasive one that they learned that new medical uh, technology has allowed them to do, which is less risky for, for babies and moms. And, you know, like, like what if what if doctors weren't like if they got a, if they were LBGYN since for 20 years now, what if they weren't continuing to learn new ways and new and new evolutions and the way this can be done better to meet the needs of their patients. For, for us, we don't take advantage of the opportunity um, to freely fail and to constantly experiment and practice this work college education so that our work remains fresh and new and for our students to see us doing so um, and, and having um, the, the, the option to do it because they're seeing their teachers not be perfect. They're seeing their teachers experiment constantly with them, alongside them, in the efforts to give them the very best education they can. And metacognitively telling their children that this is an experiment. Yes, I'm trying this on our community and we'll see how it goes. Students get their hints for how to respond to education from their parents, from traditional ways of teaching and learning, which I feel essentially hurts them and doesn't give them the agency to go out and be the earth shakers and world changers we're supposed to be trying to empower them to become. I really wish you could, could see my face right now, Ana, because I'm really grinning. I, I think everything you're doing is so great. And I wish we could have been in the same building together because I've experienced a lot of what you just shared in terms of my colleagues not really understanding where I'm coming from, and it definitely creates undue tension that kids could feel. Yes. Um, I often would have like a crazy idea before class, change my entire plan yep. and walk into class saying, all right, we're going to try something new today. I have no idea if it's going to work, but we're going to try it together. And your feedback is going to be really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um,
Yeah. So I just, I love, I love, love, love that you're in a space where you could share this with a broad audience of kids and create atmospheres and environments that kids could really feel like they belong in their own learning. So thank you for that. Oh, well, thank you. I think sort of the freedom to fail, um, the liberty to learn and the empowerment to innovate is so important. And we need to model that. I mean, that's why I like to call myself a lead learner. Um, I, I don't even call myself a teacher. And I threw that in um, the the little uh, information um, piece you had me to fill out um, because um, teachers' responsibility is to basically feed kids in, uh, information and have them to pump it back out in an assessment. You're dispensing information. But I truly believe that I am the architect of leading children out of a thing um, and, 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 and um, relinquishing um, and freeing them from non-information, a subconscious versus a heightened conscience. Um, and ignorance, quite honestly. Um, and, and you can only do that as a practitioner. If you want them to have the freedom to take intellectual risks, they need to see us taking intellectual risks and being honest about that. Um, but sometimes our systems and our institutions, because it has they have an archaic ideology of what a teacher should do, um, they place unrealistic expectations on educators and expect them to know everything. And that is not the expectation, especially since we, especially particularly in my field, where the world is constantly changing and evolving. Um, I also think it's very Western-centric, um, which is a whole nother conversation in and of itself. It's not um, the, the way the global majority operates um, in, a, in a way that centers um, our essential humanity, which is in relationship to other humans and the communities that have created us, the communities out of which we are born, the communities out of which we um, get our formative identity, which stays with us forever um, and really is a blueprint for the way in which we often navigate life. And so uh, in, in terms of sort of um, this idea of the beloved community, um, which is a coining of Martin Luther King, um, but but creating beloved communities in our classrooms, which is a world sphere in itself, which sort of uh, swivels out to what Mr. Moore and I call our Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. So we teach them to um, have this sense of beloved community, which in and of itself is a modality of resistance because we, we exist in a world that we feel that our humanity is based our, on our right to be individuals, where we never exist in isolation. We couldn't be created in isolation, so we can't form our essential selves in isolation um, To and, and sort of cast that out to our, you know, our neighborhoods, our cities, our state, and ultimately our world. I think that's sort of the ultimate thing we're trying to do in creating earth shakers and world changers, um, which is sort of the antithesis of what our our current um, landscape teaches us is is what humanity is as a general statement. You've brought up so many really important concepts, and I wish we could just keep talking all day, but. You recently just said um, expanding our communities. And so I want to give you an opportunity to shout out some other people who ourselves and our listeners can go out and learn from in addition to you. Oh, thank you so much. Well, you've heard me mention my teaching partner. His name is Jacob Moore. Um, 
I'm I am a literacy and performance person. That's where I have been degreed and have gotten my certifications. But um, working in the social sciences with Jacob Moore, who has really um, literally changed my approach to teaching and learning, and with whom I'd love to literally do this continued work with forever, if possible, is a first shout out. One of the best bosses I've ever had, who happened to be female. Her name is Daphne Carter, and um, what I loved about her is that she's always lifted my unconventional approach to teaching um, that people have often tried to vilify. And she admonished people, go in there and posture yourself to learn versus posturing yourself to criticize and adjudicate. And perhaps you too, you will learn something. Um, uh, uh, Tom Oden, who is um, the secondary uh, head of our school, who has uh, really blessed and supported uh, sort of, and, and and even when he hasn't quite understood it, written, you know, written along with the work and and try to understand it and, and posture himself to learn. Um, and, and the lovely Crystal Frommert. Um, the wonderful thing about her math classroom is that it doesn't look like a math classroom. And so, you know, I was always talking her about, so what are you teaching? Because I want my daughter to be in your classroom. Kids are just up. They're learning. They're experiencing learning. They're loud. They're interactive. They're up. They're moving. Um, and, and they're happy. They're joyful. Um, and math just doesn't feel nearly as intimidating because it's so multi-sensory in her space. And so, um I'm I'm always so appreciative of anyone who can make math look sexy. <laughs> so that would be Crystal. And that's it. I'm blushing over here. Thank you for say, <laughs> saying all of that. This has been a wonderful conversation and we really appreciate your time. And we, I'm just so excited that we had a chance to talk with you. And like Emma said, I wish we could talk for, for several hours, honestly. Of course. Well, thank you for considering me and you ladies keep fighting the good fight and using the avenue that you have in this position and beyond to um, to, to uh, advocate for um, educational freedom for us all. Thank you for learning with us today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. If you'd like any additional information from the show, check out the show notes. Learn more about Mastery Portfolio and how we support schools at MasteryPortfolio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Mastery for All and on LinkedIn on our Mastery Portfolio page. We'd love for you to engage with us. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or know someone who would be an inspiring guest, please fill out the survey found in the show notes. And we'd love your feedback. Please write a review on your favorite podcasting app. Thank you.